Welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. This bonus episode is from the 12-part Genetics Shambles video series, which you can catch live every fortnight at 8.30pm from the 1st of July on the Cosmic Shambles Network. It's a wide-ranging series of conversations and discussions about the past, present and future of genetics with some of the world leaders in the field. It's hosted by Robin Ince in association with the Genetics Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. You can watch new live stream episodes first at cosmicshambles.com slash geneticsshambles or youtube.com slash cosmicshambles. Or just catch up here with a podcast edition one week later on Genetics Unzipped. Enjoy. Hello, before the podcast starts, I just want to quickly say that sometimes with the live shows during a pandemic, there can be slight technical issues. So you might hear the odd audio glitch or strange bit of background noise. And of course, what you're not seeing necessarily is someone who is off screen, but their audio is still on and they may well also be battling with their laptop at that point. So occasionally these things are invisible and weird. We hope there are as few of those as possible, but apologies for that. Uh, and it's uh, in this one, it's brief and it's towards the end, but hopefully that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment of the show too much. So enjoy. It's amazing that explaining life's immense diversity all comes down to some genetics and some biochemistry. And life on Earth is just one family. And what's true for you is true for all biology. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genetic Shambles. This is the, uh, I think it's the fourth in in the series of uh, of these shows, uh, and this is presented by Cosmic Shambles Network, which I do a lot of other stuff with, and the Genetic Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. And you can go and find all the previous episodes, uh, things that we've been talking about, which have been both about the development of uh, understanding of the human genome, and uh, also about what we are able to understand about things like the uh, the coronavirus situation as well. Um, from the perspective of genetics, that's all up at cosmicshambles.com slash uh, genetic shambles. I almost said forward slash. That's how old I am. I am of a generation where we used to have to say forward slash as well. You can also uh, listen on the Genetics Unzipped podcast. And uh, also mention that we did a conversation, had a really lovely conversation myself and, uh, and Brian Cox the other day uh, with Andrean, who, of course, uh, did incredible work on, on Cosmos with Carl Sagan and uh, also the Golden Record. She was the person who kind of basically was, was in charge of putting together the, the executive of the golden record which continues to go through space waiting to play bark to some extraterrestrial um or other and also have uh, a message somebody you might know from the secretary general of the un at the time who unfortunately was later out found out to be um a nazi so looking back probably not a message we should have really sent across but no one knew at the time these errors happen in uh, extraterrestrial attempts at communication so today we're going to be talking uh, about evolution and we're going to be talking uh, about how we've got to where we have got to in terms of understanding about how we have arisen to become this creature that we are and indeed the other creatures around us and also about the future of us understanding uh, both uh, our past and uh, and our future as well maybe even the present we might deal with all of it we're in a block, block universe we can do that so we're joined today by Chris Stringer, Chris Stringer who's, research, who's leader. research leader in human evolution at the Natural History Museum Dr Ada Andres who is associate professor at the University London Genetics, Genetics, Inst- Genetics Institute and Dr Rebecca Rag honorary researcher at the, at the Université de Bordeaux. Her new book is Kindred, which is all about Neanderthals. And I love talking about Neanderthals because it also allows you to talk about cannibalism. So, uh, and it's always nice to get an excuse just to talk about cannibalism because, you know, it's, some people find that kind of off-putting in a kind of social situation. Uh, if you have any questions as well that you would like to ask, then uh, you can just pop them under. Uh, Trent, our producer, our wonderful producer, will be watching out for any live questions questions that come and uh, we will try and deal with any of those so questions again as i said today we are mainly dealing with uh, human evolution how we've got to where we've got to and uh, where we're going to go from there so i'm going to start off with uh, chris chris i now let's get some I, i'm intrigued about what changed for us where with, with darwin we we have the, the the real route it seems to me in terms of understanding natural selection there was then a period of time in the early 20th century where he almost went kind of out of of evidence-based fashion how much 
did our understanding of genetics change the position of evolution by natural selection? Well, yeah, I think it made uh, a big impact on the whole interpretation of, of human evolution because, um, you know, when I was you know, first beginning in this field as an undergrad, there was a huge debate about how closely related we were to the great apes, which ones were our nearest relatives, and when we split from them. And at that time, the split for some people was 30 million years ago. So we were very distantly related to chimpanzees in particular, and it wasn't even known that they were our closest relatives. So I think certainly in the last 40 or 50 years, just having that DNA data that shows we are very closely related relatively to the chimpanzees um, and that that divergence maybe was 7 million years ago, which geologically speaking, of course, is, is very recent. I mean, that, that is, do, do, you see, do you still find there are people, because of course human exceptionalism means that people can, I was, I was talking with Jane Goodall a few weeks back and when, when her work was first in Gombe, when that was first getting published, there were people who did not like finding out that not merely did it appear that we had a, you know, a reasonably close relationship, but also even in terms of our society, in terms of levels of behaviour. Do you still find that as that evidence has accrued there are people who have a tremendous resistance to our close relationship with other primates yes uh, there are people who uh, challenge it all the time they challenge it genetically they challenge it morphologically they challenge it behaviorally and part of the debate that probably will include what we're talking about tonight is to what extent all these earlier kinds of humans were also very like us so there's been a debate recently about the Neanderthals and how close are they to us. And for some people, they're still quite distantly related. They don't share much of our behavior. They really are very distinct. And for other people, they're almost like us. So I think even within you know, recent human evolution, there is that debate about how special and exceptional our species is. Well, well, Rebecca, you've just been been writing about this as as we mentioned, and uh, from two thousand and five, where uh, I forget which scientist it was, but was basically saying it's it's going to be very rare if there was any kind of uh, um, interbreeding between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. Now, this is a very different picture now, fifteen years on, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 quite amazing actually. In in barely a decade, really. Um, what we know, what we sort of hypothesize and what we know we don't know has really transformed. Um, when we first um, sort of found out there had been, uh, as Chris said, sort of arguments and, and debates that were ongoing um, that were based actually in the, in the anatomy and in people's expectations of how populations might relate to each other long term. But um, the big change was having the nuclear DNA um, that was what really shifted things and since that happened it's just been just like an explosion it's hard for, for us to keep up never mind anybody else um, and where we are now is that we can we can see that there there had to have been multiple phases um, in terms of through time where there was contact um, between Neanderthals and early Homo sapiens, and also between Neanderthals and other archaic hominins, so Denisovans, and between Denisovans and us, so what kind of seemed like it may have been a world where people were so sparse that they barely sort of interacted, that's looking a lot more complicated, um, so we see that there is, in genetic terms, intriguing sort of evidence for contact very late and quite early but the archaeology is really really difficult to match um match that up with and, and sort of work out exactly what mechanisms we're really looking at so that's that's the big question i think that we've got to move on towards but it's really hard could I ask about, I was lucky enough, I, I went to uh, Svante Parbo's um, labs at the Max Planck Institute and the process, I mean, this to me is for, for anyone wondering, you know, the idea of, of how, how do you manage to get the DNA evidence of, of a Neanderthal? Could you just give us some, some sense of, of what had to be found and what are the difficulties of finding of an extinct species of managing to, to get that evidence? I think I do would be better than that. 
Genetics Great. is a dark is art a... for me. Because <laughs> it is, yeah, either it is, is such a, to me, when when I first saw those labs and I started being told about them, and then all of the, you know, the, the, there is obviously endeavor, but there's also luck and there's hope. And there's, can you tell, tell us this story? I spent in that department, so I, I've... Um... I've seen this happening. Yes, I think that the, the, what, the thing that has changed incredibly in the last uh, few years is the fact that technologically we are able to extract DNA from these ancient specimens. So the samples have been there for a really long time and, and some people like Chris, like they know them very well. And what has happened recently is that we now have the means to extract the DNA. So what happens in a lot of these laboratories, not only that one, but many others, is that there's a constant effort into sampling really small, really small samples of these precious um, remains and then try as much as you can to get any DNA from them and then treat it like gold and then just do the best that you can in order to extract the most amount of information. And most of the time, you don't really get a lot of information from them. And sometimes you're extraordinarily lucky and you get one of these amazing genomes that provide really a lot of information that have been really critical in telling us what is the relationship between these uh, populations and in showing that there has been this introgression, this uh, interbreeding between the different populations, which has allowed us not only to know how much of the genome of some modern humans um, has a Neanderthal origin, but also which parts of our genome, of the genome of people living today, have come through interbreeding from Neanderthals or other forms of archaic humans like the Nisovans. Can, can you tell us what, because I, I, I think that when I, I first went to the lab, to the lab I might have been reading around it, that I, I mentioned cannibalism at the beginning, that one of the samples that, that was meant to be great was it looked like what had happened was in a desperation cannibalism, I think it's called, which is, you know, where there is no choice and you have to, uh, I'm sure, you know, many people may have been up against that at times. And and by the fact that all of the meat, all of that w was, was scraped off, it meant that the bone was then not uh, open in terms of bacterial predators as much and so it managed to maintain its integrity so so what is a good sample what 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 do you what are you hoping for so i think that chris will be really good about talking about this. from my point of view it is what i've seen it's really difficult to predict which samples are going to provide good dna it is almost impossible because it depends on the temperature and the conditions that these samples have been for a really long time so what you need is a dna to Served. Because the DNA breaks down with time, so you have a whole genome with living organisms, and then the moment they die, then it starts degrading because there are enzymes that break them and then other, other organisms that eat them. So it starts turning into smaller and smaller pieces. If the pieces are too small, then you cannot make sense of them, so you don't get information. And what you need is samples that have long enough pieces of DNA that you can actually interpret them. And um, Chris would be better than me, I think, to say this, but from my point of view, I don't see a very clear pattern. So samples that have been in cold environments are preserved better, and that makes sense, right? Uh, but I don't think that you can look at a bone and say, this is going to be well-preserved and we're going to get DNA from this. I was trying to remember the, the story remember of, the story of someone in a museum who grabbed a bone and just literally sucked it and went, that one's going to be useless. It's been varnished. Like, I think that was the... Uh, can we continue with this, by the way, in a way where each time uh, the second question I ask anyone, you then say, I think Chris would be better at that. I think Rebecca would be better at this. I think I Because it's working very nicely in terms of this this flow that we've created. So, Chris, yes, can, can yeah. you tell us more in terms of, you know, when you might sometimes see a hopeful sample and then go... Ah, this is not what yeah, we... Yeah, well, I, I think, as I just said, it, it's very difficult to predict because even in the same site, there'll be some bones that don't seem to have any DNA and others that have it very well preserved. Even within a single bone, it seems sometimes one end of the bone has good DNA preservation and the other one doesn't. So I think it is very difficult to predict and certainly cool conditions are, are certainly a big help. Um, and also, I, I think, as you've mentioned, Svante Palmer at one stage really thought that if having the flesh removed off a bone by cannibalism or some other process, as you say, actually improved the preservation. So there's a site in Croatia, Vindia, and that had very good DNA preservation in the Neanderthals, and those Neanderthals had been cannibalized. 
So it does seem that that makes a difference uh, in some ways, often helping the process. But yes, there are certainly uh, age is a factor. The older the bones in general, obviously, the less organic preservation, the less DNA. The oldest DNA we have at the moment from a human is about 430,000 years old from a leg bone from Atapuerca in Spain. But that's really exceptional. Most of the DNA is much younger. But there's a cave that's been mentioned already, Denisova Cave in Siberia, which has been a real treasure trove. So there, really quite cold conditions have led to really quite exceptional preservation, both for Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA. So both these kinds of humans were living there, and then later on, modern humans were living there. So just in that single site in Siberia, we've had a fantastic treasure trove of DNA. And there are now methods, a method called zooms, means that you can even get a tiny fragment of bone, which I couldn't even identify as human, and zooms will look at it, look at its collagen and protein content, and say, that's pretty certainly human. And then you can target it for DNA. So some of the DNA now of a Neanderthal and a Denisovan is coming from fragments that I couldn't even tell that they were human or Denisovan. Well, that, that's a fascinating. I mean, when the Denisovans, when it was was first kind of being talked about, the fact that here is another species, it was a very small amount, wasn't it, that had actually been discovered in terms of, of trying to... Yes, it was the end of, of a finger, a tiny part of a little finger bone. <laughs> so small, you, you, you know, that's about all you could say about it. And yet it had uh, DNA preservation more or less as good as a modern bone. And that bone is... I don't know, maybe 70, 80,000 years old now is the estimate. So that's how good the DNA preservation was for that individual. And of course, it was a surprise because it was a completely new kind of human, uh, one that uh, we had no idea existed, uh, neither Neanderthal nor modern human, more closely related to Neanderthals, but splitting off from them quite early in time. And that's the amazing thing about you know, whether modern humans is special or not, but even 70,000 years ago, there were probably at least five kinds of humans around on the earth. So we were certainly nothing special, if you like, 70,000 years ago, there were five different versions of humanity around on the planet, at least, and maybe more. See, that, Rebecca, to me, is I think when I was growing up, uh, it was obviously a very long time ago, and many, many things have changed. Brontosauruses went out of fashion, and they're back in, so many different things. But there was, you know, the image that I, on all the books that I used to love buying was there's Australopithecus standing next to Homo erectus, standing next to Neanderthal, standing next to modern human. That that was, and, and also it was this kind of misleading thing as if one became the other, this kind of almost a transmogrification. So now, as Chris said, I mean, what are we talking about in terms of just, let alone the tree of life, this kind of, you know, the tree of of, of, of recent hominids? Yeah, um, that's, if you, if you go back to, say, like, four million years ago, um, where we are now, sort of, if you put aside debates over sort of which fossils belong to which groupings and things like this you're still looking at somewhere between 10 to 15 species now in in the last four million years which is really quite astonishing um and that's really transformed our perception of of the diversity of different ways of being a hominin i think um that was kind of hinted at in some of the early australopithecine species so that was um sort of post four million years bipedal but still quite small brained almost a bit chimpy although they were completely upright we didn't really know whether they were making stone tools or not but that now, that now looks like they were um and we could see that there were different forms of australopithecine some of them sort of had much more chunky massive teeth and probably eating different things but where we are beyond that now in terms of the different kinds of um, hominins is quite clear that um, it, within Africa alone, there were many different experiments in, in being a hominin going on. Um, and the other thing as well, I think that's really different is the, the visual idea um, of what the hominin family looks like. And this is where genetics is, is really sort of making us shift our perception is that it's not a tree with all this simple branching. It's much more like a river 
where you have streams meeting, things going off, you have an oxbow lake that just doesn't do anything and and then larger sort of channels and it's much more dynamic, I think, than than people even used to to guess about. And like to go back to the Denisovans actually, what's fascinating about that as an archaeologist is that we know way more about them as a population than we do about them as individuals. We don't really know what they looked like, their whole bodies, because we've got just scraps from Denisova Cave. We have a piece um, from Tibet, a jaw that probably is, if not a Denisovan, a very closely related um, sort of subpopulation. Um, but we don't really know sort of what their overall physical appearance was. We don't know what their culture was like. Although they are in Denisova Cave, um, it's not entirely clear who was there when and who was making what kind of um, artifacts. So that is a strange place to be in. And that's that's the first time we've ever been in that situation where the genetics is revealing far more about a species than, than the archaeology. And that's that's a huge challenge. Like, you know, where are the rest of the Denisovans, basically? Um, and so that, that kind of picture of of sort of huge amounts of detail about one species is there and then the genetics has also been adding to this diversity in more and more fossils by showing that um, there were probably deep deep connections between many of these hominin groups um, for example with Homo naledi this um, really unexpected uh, hominin that came from South Africa um, it looked quite primitive in some ways people were expecting it to be like a million years plus turned out to be more like 200,000 years um which is very recent in in the broader terms of human evolution um we don't know what relationship that had with other hominins whether it was around with other hominin groups whether it actually you know was sort of a different species in the same environment we just don't know and um, so there's there's so many questions now because we have actually a huge amount more data than we ever used to have so Aida, I just wondered whether in, in terms of, this, this might, might be, be an absolutely preposterous question, but once we have a genome sequenced, are we able to make some informed conjecture into the culture? Is it possible to say that if this, that, that, and I, I, that if we read, here is this huge book that we've read, and it's similar to this huge book that we've read, and it seems to have these particular likely in terms of, I don't know, for, for instance, the diet that might be possible. Are we able to make any, any assumptions based around that? That's a, that's a very good question. It's a really difficult thing to do. So for starters, so with gen, I mean, the genomes are really powerful, as we're seeing, in order to tell us about the relationships between the populations and how the populations look like. Were they, were they big? Were they small? We can say things about what level of inbreeding that population had or the parents of this individual, what level of inbreeding they had. Um, and we can start to make some inferences about with, as we accumulate genomes, some inferences about maybe which traits were beneficial or which parts of the genome contain variants that were beneficial in that population. But there are two things that are really difficult to do. The first one is to make inferences about the, the phenotypic trait of this individual. I'm very sorry about that. The phenotypic traits of this individual, so saying what color hair they had or what, um, how tall they were, his body. Um, trait is very difficult to make an inference, mostly because we don't understand enough the genome in order to say what each variant in the genome means in terms of of traits. And what I would say is, I mean, maybe somebody disagrees with me, but I would say is we can say nothing about the culture. The culture is not in the genome. So there's sometimes the genome changes in response to the culture, and that has happened in modern humans in some populations, for example, their selection to allow us to uh, drink milk into adulthood in some populations. And that's a response to a culture where people started drinking milk for one reason or another. But it is extraordinarily difficult to go from the genome to the culture, I think. Chris, I think you wanted to uh, add something. Well, yes, actually to, to ask Aida something specific about these so-called organoids that we've heard about, <laughs> where people take say parts of brain cells and grow them yeah. and allegedly they're able to start modeling the difference between a, a human brain a chimpanzee brain and a neanderthal brain in terms of the way it develops do you think this is a a, a, a good way forward for those kinds of studies 
I think for phenotype of individual individual organs, it definitely. So what we call the molecular phenotype and the organ and the and the tissue phenotype, I think it is because with lots of limitations, but you can see one particular genetic variant that Neanderthals have that humans don't have. What does it do at the molecular level, and what does it do to a given tissue? I think that going any farther is difficult because there are more changes. So there have been, for example, really interesting efforts of looking at the difference, genetic differences between humans and, say, Neanderthals, and then make inferences about which traits might be different between modern humans and Neanderthals, um, and in which direction they go. And this is really very interesting, and it's, it's what you should be trying to do. But one limitation is that you can only look at the effect of each of these individually. And, and what you have is two genomes that are different in a number of different bases. So I think it's very, very difficult. I think it's interesting to make those inferences, but I think that one has to be very aware that they are very limited. With that said, I think organoids are a, a really interesting way to, to go forward. I do, yeah. Um, Becky? Obviously, like you can't see from a genome if someone was making stone tools of a particular type or not, you know, that's totally impossible. But I think one interesting way to, to kind of look at it is one thing for me that does sort of hint at, at behavior um, is the interbreeding evidence. Um, but what that's actually telling us is really tricky. Um, so if if we can see that multiple times Neanderthals um, and early Homo sapiens were um, were basically making babies, um, what does that actually mean for their behaviour? It means that there was a social interest in each other. Um, what the motivation for that was is unclear, um, but beyond there being, you know, it could be aggressive, um, it could be actually a sort of amicable curiosity. Um, arguing for any particular um, one of those in, in a particular circumstance is pretty much impossible just from the genes. Um, but for me, I think the fact that it's there repeatedly um, over a long time, I find that interesting because for if you survey all of the rest of the Neanderthal sort of archaeological record, the whole picture, for me, they are much less like um, the aggressive social models that we see with chimpanzees. And I find them much more similar to bonobos, which is a, a pygmy chimpanzee society that's kind of based on actually sharing of food. Um, they don't have that same aggressive um, setup as chimpanzees, which seems to be based around sort of competition over resources. And I think Neanderthals are more likely to not be aggressive and be aggressive if you look at the whole large scale. Um, so if some of the contact was based in sort of actual curiosity, then you start to kind of think, well, okay, if you have an interbreeding event, how is that child being raised and in which group? And they need to be able, even though they're different species, they need to be able to survive within the other group that's raising them, to be able to understand the social mores and how to be in that group in order that they can then go on and have their own offspring. And then that is how, you know, we can see that genetic um, trace it, it because it's there in, in generations um, existing today. So I think that's, that's like a hint of behaviour that's there, um, but it is complicated. I've always said that I've always said the, the bonobo I don't know where we are in terms of understanding its fashion sense but I remember one of the first articles that I ever read about a bonobo was observation of the fact that sometimes they would find a dead animal such as a dead lizard or rat and one of them would then parade around uh, showing it off as if it was a hat at Ascot and I, I just love this kind of you know the different here we've got the chimpanzee the tool used for eating termites the bonobo very much a kind of fashion sense thing going on there uh, with the latest uh, pink tailed hat um, Chris I think you wanted to, to add something as well. Yes, really, just to take up that point from Becky, uh, we obviously don't know how these interactions happened. And indeed, they could have been all the way from friendly exchanges of partners through to much more aggressive interactions. So, for example, in some chimpanzee groups, some hunter-gatherer groups, if a band of males run out of females, they will raid a neighbouring group and steal some of the females from that group. Now, that could have happened, obviously, in some cases. In some cases, it may have been ad adopting orphan babies, even into the group. So all of those are possibilities. 
Um, it could have been a Neanderthal male hanging around the outside of a modern human group and uh, now and again, you know, picking up one of the, the modern human women. Um, but obviously the DNA in that case went into the modern human group. So we know that. So most of us outside Africa have around 2% Neanderthal DNA now from that interbreeding that happened 40, 50, 60,000 years ago. So it certainly happened and that DNA came in and stayed in the modern human groups. What's interesting to me is that for the late Neanderthals, so far, I don't think there's any evidence that it mm. went the other way. Earlier on, there is indication there was some modern human DNA going into Neanderthals, but for the last Neanderthals, so far, I don't think it showed up. And I think, and maybe Aida can comment on this, I think eventually we might get some insight into the process by looking at the ratio of male and females that were contributing to the population. So by looking maybe at uh, X chromosomes, I've, I've heard from some geneticists that you might eventually be able to dis discover whether it was mainly, the, the Neanderthal DNA was mainly coming into modern humans via females or males or maybe both. Is that something that could be possible one day? That, that's, um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's theoretically possible, right? Because um, males and females are contributing different parts of the genome to the offspring. I think one of the, one of the complications we have there is that we know there has been some selection against the alleles that came from Neanderthals in modern humans. So we know that, so the, the most of the, most of the um, DNA that we have inherited from the Neanderthals doesn't really have an effect, but of the, of the genetic variants that have an effect, we, we believe the majority of them were not beneficial in modern humans. And then selection, natural selection, removed them from the population, and then a few of them were beneficial, and they are very high frequencies to the populations, which is very interesting because it means that interbreeding with these populations allowed populations of modern humans to adapt to those environments, which is, I think, I think it's fascinating. Um, I think one of the problems that we have with making these inferences is that the X chromosome, which is really the, the key chromosome to tell us what is the ratio of male to female uh, contribution, or is this a stronger selection against Neanderthal uh, variants than other parts of the genome? So that complicates the picture. Um, but yeah, theoretically, yeah, it should be possible to look into this. I think another problem is that we don't have so many, it's only 2%. So the differences between chromosomes are not very large. And um, what I think, I agree with one thing that you said, and is that what is going to be very interesting in the coming years is to see whether as we have more uh, genomes from later Neanderthals, we do see or not any evidence of later introgression. So there is some evidence that there has been later introgression after the original one, uh, but as you say, it's very biased towards modern humans. So it will be interesting to, to identify, if, if, if it has happened, to identify uh, what we call gene flow in the other direction. Individuals that were hybrids and stayed with the Neanderthals and just uh, contributed to that population. Aida, Aida, if we could, could stay with you, just because I, I want to, because time is already just going very quickly. Thank you very much, by the way. We've had some questions in. I, I will uh, we'll ask the audience questions in a moment. But I want to hear a little bit about some of the research uh, in Tibet about adaptation to um, high altitude. Now, this is a, a paper you've been involved in and published quite recently. Isn't that right? Um, I haven't. No, I've been involved in addition to cold altitude. Uh, sorry, to, to uh, high latitude and cold to the Tibet uh, one. The Tibet right. Extraordinary interesting, extraordinary interesting story. I mean, I'm very happy to talk about that. That's a, that's a variant that we believe has allowed uh, people in Tibet to live at very high altitudes. And that's a variant that has entered the human population through interbreeding either with the Nisobans or with a population that um, were close to the Nisobans, we think. And and so in terms of the the the, the well, recent, what else have you, what are the latest in terms of discovering about these adaptations that that you've also been researching as well, in uh, terms of dealing with cold, etc. Okay, okay. So what what I would say is is that uh, there's if, if we're if we're focusing on adaptive on on these um, variants that came from Neanderthals and Denisovans and have been beneficial, 
Um, I think that there, it's clear that there are some phenotypes where these variants that came into modern humans were just better than the, than the ones that we had and have allowed us to send the populations to live in environments where maybe these archive populations existed before um, and modern humans were not very well adapted to. So there are some examples in, um, so altitude is a very interesting example and there are a number of examples in genes that are involved in immunology. So what we believe is that well, Neanderthals and Denisovans, they live in those environments where modern humans arrived later. And maybe they were pre-adapted to, for example, fighting some pathogens that humans encountered when they found these Neanderthals and, and Denisovans. And then through intermixing with them, we basically borrowed those variants. So now they are part of the, of the human genome, have them. And it's just a way of basically mixing adapt to the environment in a way, even though that's not obviously not the objective, but that's how it works genetically. And we, I don't think we have a very good sense of exactly which phenotypes mo some modern humans have because we have been able to borrow them from them. Uh, we are learning more and more about this, uh, but it's a very active area of research. Great. I'm, I'm going to quickly move to some of the questions just to make sure we fit them in chris just uh we've had lucy would like to know about um she said I, I hear the out of africa theory explained differently more often than not in pubs can you explain what is the out of africa theory and what do we understand by it okay yes well of course of course different people understand it in different ways so that's one of the issues but obviously first of all there were many out of Africa events. So there was one probably around two million years ago by this early human species, Homo erectus. Um, there probably was some back into it, almost certainly back into Africa events as well. But the one that most people think of for out of Africa is the modern human one. So maybe 60,000 years ago, uh, a relatively small group of modern humans got out of Africa into Western Asia, and then they spread from there and within 30,000 years, they had got to many parts of the old world. And effectively, we then see the replacement or disappearance of those other human groups that were around, the Neanderthals, the Denisovans. Over on the island of <coughs> Flores, there was this creature, Homo floresiensis, the hobbit, so-called. These other ones disappeared and modern humans make it to Australia. They make it into Siberia. They make it across Europe. They get into the Americas. And even there, it seems now the latest evidence suggests they could have been in the Americas more than 30,000 years ago. So all of those, all of us today outside of Africa trace our ancestry back to that small group that came out maybe 60,000 years ago. So that's the out of Africa that most people talk about. But certainly it wasn't a pure out of Africa in the sense there was no intermixture. We now know that that spread of modern humans went along with a mixture in different regions with some of those local populations. And even in Africa, the populations that stayed behind, there is some evidence that they intermixed with archaic people in Africa. So there were equivalents, if you like, of the Neanderthals and Denisovans probably still surviving in Africa as modern humans were evolving. And so even in Africa, there may have been some mixture with more archaic humans that survived in Africa. So this diversity was global in terms of across the old world. And as Aida has explained, and as we know for many mammal and bird species, you know, species evolve and go their own way for a period of time. That often leads them down particular genetic and adaptive pathways. Sometimes a bit of intermixture with another species can top up your diversity and give you more variation for selection to work on. So this interbreeding between closely related species seems to be a way of topping up your diversity and actually helping evolution in the long term. Um, while we're on the interbreeding, James uh, has got a question, uh, Rebecca, uh, this again about uh, Neanderthals. If we have Neanderthal DNA, doesn't that mean we produce fertile offspring so are not a different species? And uh, um, <clears throat> there has just today been some discussion about this on Twitter between certain people. <laughs> um, I think there are different definitions in zoology of what species sort of is and where one population ends and another begins and whether that's a different species or, or not. So I think 
clearly um, some of the offspring from interbreeding were fertile. Um, we don't know if they all were. I think opinion about whether um, hybrids as as a entire group were less fit um, is sort of um, changing quite a lot. I think there's sort of evidence coming up um, sometimes saying that they weren't and then confounding sort of data is also coming up. But in terms of whether we can call them different species, well, I think if you look at the anatomy, that's um, what's very interesting is that Neanderthals remain very distinct anatomically um, until they disappear from the fossil record. I think Chris would probably agree with that. Um, the genetics is telling us that yes, they were able to interbreed, um, but what they what they looked like was still different um, right until forty thousand years ago, which is when they seem to disappear from from the fossil record. Um, Ada, um, Ada, I think you wanted to add something to that. Yeah, no, I would just say that this. I think that for anybody interested in human evolution, this um, realizing that there has been a lot of interbreeding has been an incredible discovery, and it is, but what is also happening almost in parallel in many other species is that we're seeing this is extraordinarily common. So you look at butterflies and you look at um, uh, different monkeys and you no, know, it doesn't matter where you look, what you see is that what we call species, which are very differentiated, are able to interbreed. So maybe it's the concept of a species in the way that we have defined mm. it that doesn't, that doesn't really work um, very well anymore. Um, Rebecca, I wanted to say in terms of that, that's that's really important. That, like it, when the the point at which we left the stem group that led to Neanderthals and to us was actually extremely recent in sort of evolutionary terms. It's only sort of somewhere between about 600, 700,000 years ago. Um, whereas if you look at other species like cave bears and brown bears um, or uh, that, that we also know were interbreeding, um, as I did just said, um, I think the separation between them is more ancient. So it's it's about our definitions and we've had such a long history of only having the bones <laughs> to go by um that that has sort of led us to sort of see things in particular ways and it this is this is a big challenge um with with the genetics um and i think that's going to be ongoing really um i wanted to end on uh asking just well, well firstly about that idea of are we still evolving this always intrigues people i suppose people often imagine that because we seem to control our environment more because we shape the landscape more than the, than we used to just living in the landscape that in some ways that might change the way that we evolve and the way that that we um adapt so for for each person if i start with you ada just thinking about are we still evolving how are we able to understand uh, also, I suppose, in such a small time scale as we try and observe this? I mean, I, I, my opinion is there is still quite a lot of natural selection going on in humans of many different types. I think that's undeniable. The Whether we are really changing our traits in order to become more adapted to where our modern world is, that I think it's less likely because our environment is not stable for long amounts of time and it changes and people migrate constantly and it, evolving takes a really long time. Evolving genetically takes a really long time. So there's the film. Um, there's no question about that. And there's definitely natural selection. But I would say that novel adaptations to what is our changing environment take so long that uh, right now I don't think it's very likely that it's happening a lot. Rebecca? Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, sometimes is that our brains have actually shrunk since um, the early Homo sapiens days and we don't seem to be more stupid. So, um, well, I mean, you can argue that, but in terms of the <laughs> complexity of, of sort of material creativity, um, clearly we are um, we're just as capable as, as we ever have been. Um, but in terms of yeah, I mean, I think I agree with the idea. It's, it's the difference now is that the interconnectedness of the world is just, you know, unprecedented. Um, and how long that's going to continue for is a question. Um, and I think it, looking at where we're headed in terms of climate, um, at the moment, 
as I understand it, the current projections for um, uh, carbon um, and where that's pushing us, it's looking like we're going towards somewhere between four to five degrees warming, which is putting us at um, the Eemian climate, which the Neanderthals um, survived. That's about 120,000 years ago when sea levels were about seven to eight metres higher. So we are heading for a warmer world. And whether that's going to have an effect sort of at a visible scale on our bodies, I don't know. But potentially there could be some genetic impact because that's not going to sort of suddenly stop. Um, we're looking at that for the next millennia plus. Um, and at those kind of scales, potentially, I I would expect there could be some kind of changes um, that might be visible genetically, at least um, in the next 5,000 years. <laughs> Should we be still here? <laughs> Chris, the, the, we're just talking about you know that 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 sense of being able to monitor uh, the, the, the continued the... evolution of, of of our species. Yeah, sure. I lost the conversation for a <clears throat> a couple of minutes there, but um, yes, I mean the one thing about evolution, I, I it's it's a very common question after a talk. Uh, you know, are we still evolving? What will we look like in the future? And that that's really one of the most difficult things to answer because, of course. Evolution doesn't have a forward look. It's about what works now. And as it sounds like Aida and Rebecca are both saying, you know, the climate of the earth, if that changes a lot in the near future, you know, how will we respond to it? And I think there will be major changes. We can imagine that if it goes to a four or five degree of warming, a lot of the planet will be uninhabitable and we'll end up with people, you know, stuck up near the North Pole and the South Pole. So evolution could then go in, in very strange directions with divided and much smaller human populations. So there's a lot of uncertainty in predicting those sorts of changes, particularly because they will be over really quite short timescales. Um, I'm just going to end on. I, I wonder. I'm going, I, I wonder you, I'm going to give you a bit of time to think about this. I've got a couple of other things to, to quickly tell everyone who's watching. But which is your favourite piece of fiction with its imagined uh, evolution in it? Because my my favourite is Kurt Vonnegut's Galapagos uh, and the way that he sees the, uh, uh, the 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 future of of humanity. Um, so I'm going to give you a moment to all think about that because I know it's quite hard when you're throwing something like this. Um, and just say that literally <laughs> with two minutes to go, we've suddenly had a flood of questions. Uh, on evolution so thank you very much for everyone who sent those questions because we don't have time to do them tonight um, we're either going to do them we'll do a follow up one with genetic shambles or we do a Sunday science Q&A and uh, should everyone on this panel be happy to return uh, at some time on a Sunday afternoon um, we will we will do all of the questions that you've just sent in at this moment uh, and we will deal with, with those so either on a Sunday science Q&A um, or on uh, uh, um, we, we'll do a follow-up on the genetic shambles with the questions you've just sent us. Um, I should tell you that uh, this Sunday at 3pm uh, British Summer Time, we are doing uh, our Sunday Science q and about the human mind um, with uh, Anil Seth uh, and Ginny Smith and Helen Chersky. Um, so I've fed you some time now. You have no alibis. Um Let's start with, uh, can I start with you, Chris? Um, yes. Well, obviously, there are, there are a number of books with the Neanderthals uh, in them, uh, works of fiction. And uh, two of my favourites are The Inheritors by William Golding and uh, Dance of the Tiger by Bjorn Curtin. And uh, they're very different visions of, of the world and the Neanderthals. But I think the one by Bjorn Curtin I really like because he was an expert on the Ice Age and Ice Age mammals. So he really knew what the landscape was like and the behaviour of all the animals that the Neanderthals and the early modern humans were interacting with. So I think that's probably my single favourite book, Dance of the Tiger. Yeah. Brilliant. Ada? Um, I don't think I have a favourite, uh, but uh, in terms of as a geneticist, popular culture, I think that Gataka is one of, is not my favourite movie at all. But uh, from the point of view of the science, I think it's an interesting one. Right. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, where in movies where we have seen a real rise in terms of attempts at scientific accuracy. And I think it, I, I've seen a, a good effect from that. But it's very interesting when the number of times you'll hear the screenwriter say, but yeah. then at the last minute, the director went, do you know what? This plot twist better. But it's scientifically inaccurate. Sorry. So every now and again, Hollywood has to win on that particular one. Rebecca, have you got a favourite novel or piece of fiction? Uh, yeah, I mean... 
if I say first about Neanderthals, I have to give a shout out to Jean Owl. You know, she's old school, but she's awesome and she was well ahead of her time. However, a more recent um, book that, that sort of went under the radar because it wasn't released in the UK uh, is by Claire Cameron called The Last Neanderthal. Um, and that has got some really fantastic imaginings of what Neanderthal existence was like. Um, I quote it in my book, actually, in the last chapter. It's brilliant. So if, it, if you can find that, that's awesome. But in terms of sort of where you know, human evolution might go. Um, I'm a real science fiction sort of fan. I like space set stuff, space opera. And I think that actually, from what we were talking about is where's humanity going? Space is the setting where we are going to be in drastically different physical settings, which would force us to adapt very quickly if we are in space and having children um, over sort of centuries. I think that's really interesting because the, the stress that bodies are under, the reproduction that could be happening in space, you know, sort of um, what happens in zero G to embryos and things, that's a really interesting idea. And sort of, you know, do you have like asteroid cultures and, and sort of subgroups of humans that would be living out in the asteroid belt? What would they look like? That's in loads of novels and I love that. It's a really, that is a really a great movie uh, whose name I can whose name never remember. I can never remember. It's one of those things. It's just one name. It's like Ariana or Ariadne, and it's oh, about yeah, space. Yeah, that's it's, awesome. Um, I love that. So bleak. What's its title? I can never remember what it. I literally found it late one night, and it's 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 Ariadne or, or, or Ariana, I think, or something. Yeah, no, yeah, it's an amazing film for an archaeologist. Yeah, it, it, it's yeah, it's basically a, a spaceship which uh, loses its power on a three week journey to Mars. And then we just follow it for 10 years as it just drifts like a luxury liner going uh, continually nowhere. It's a very interesting Can't stop. And they, yeah, and they the just upper. end up out in another planet somewhere. And yeah, they're all dead. <laughs> so good. Thank you so much, everyone, for, uh, for for joining us tonight. And yet again, thank you very much, everyone, for for sending um, all those last minute questions, which I promise we will do a follow up uh, with this. So thank you very much, Professor Chris Stringer, Dr. Ada Andreas, and uh, Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes as well. And I will, uh, I know, Chris, you, you uh, have you got a, a what, what's your most recent book? Uh, well, the last one, our human story uh, with louise humphrey natural history museum book that's great and and i was so i'll mention again because i just felt that i just uh, felt that uh uh becky as well because your your new book is uh kindred can i just check ada is there any uh, book of yours that we need to start plugging yet or you've not finished it as i only write papers i cannot write books uh, you say that now, but you wait, you wait. The, uh, there's so many fascinating things to explore uh, in this area. Thank you very much to our producer, Trent Burton. Uh, thanks very much for joining us with uh, Genetic Shambles. And uh, as I said, part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Thank you to the Genetic Society and Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath as well. Uh, it's between all of us that this has been put together. Um, have a lovely week. We're going to be back in two weeks' time uh, at the same time. And, of course, this is also uh, available. It's recorded and can be watched anytime online as well. Well, thanks very much. Bye-bye.